Welcome to the Governance Roundtable of the Ostrom Workshop, where we work together to better understand and manage common challenges facing our communities and the world. I'm Ariana Gunderson, a second year PhD student in anthropology at Indiana University, and I'm an Ostrom Fellow this year. This series is designed to highlight the groundbreaking work being done by scholars affiliated with the Ostrom Workshop at Indiana University. The Ostrom Workshop, named for Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2009, and for her husband, Vincent Ostrom, focuses on the Ostrom's work that helped demonstrate the importance of building trust and community to sustainably manage shared resources. In so doing, the Ostroms challenged the conventional wisdom of the time and helped usher in a new wave of research grounded in empirically verifiable fieldwork. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Seth Fry, Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication at UC Davis. Seth holds a PhD in Cognitive Science and Informatics from Indiana University and a BA in Cognitive Science from UC Berkeley and is an affiliate of the Ostrom Workshop. And something that Seth and I also have in common is that we're affiliated with Bloomington Cooperative Living and we're part of cooperative housing projects. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about Ostrom research, ideas of governance, and how that translates to cooperative housing. Hi there, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so um, these are yeah, closely tied subjects for me, um, living with other people and kind of sharing your life uh, physically with other people and, uh, and the scholarship around um, the commons, the treasures of the commons. And yeah, uh, we've already gotten to bond um, uh, even about the mundane commons of uh, dishes in the kitchen sink um, and just the, the how nice it is um, to study what you live a little bit, how nice it is to experience in daily life the commons failures uh, and occasional successes <laughs> that we study. Yeah. So to get us started, I wonder if you could talk about um, the origins of Bloomington Cooperative Living. I know you were a co-founder and your connections to the Ostrom Workshop at the time. Yeah, um, uh, so I can go a little further back. Um, I discovered cooperatives um, during my undergraduate uh, at UC Berkeley. They started out as a kind of just fun place to live and exciting, the parties were good. Um, but after a couple of years, you start to realize, you know, this is mine. This is an avenue towards personal economic and political empowerment. Um, I can use this as a vehicle to become who I want to be. And um, other people are getting those experiences, too. So it, it, uh, it became a source of, of you know, kind of mission. And so um, I got very lucky uh, in 2007, um, a year before I arrived, uh, Bloomington Cooperative Living uh, got co-founded by an undergraduate as a senior thesis project, uh, um, uh, Emily, and um, and several master's students in just all over the university, all of whom had lived in cooperatives in their undergraduate. Um, and I sort of joined the founding crew late, um, but we were able to build it up together into you know house by house. Uh, so it started as about five people and ended up, uh, by the time I left, around um, 55 people. Uh, during that time, um, I was being a cognitive science student, interested in collect human collective behavior, um, flocking and synchronization and just these uh, interesting things that are at the intersection. In a way, a very micro-sociology and very macro-psychology, I guess you could say. Uh, but um, crashing a party, I met another person who had lived in co-ops himself and who was a student at this place called the Ostrom Workshop. And he started telling me that there's a science of um, sharing stuff with other people. 
uh, and I attended, and then I enrolled in Lynn's class, and I met her. Um, uh, it was taking up the term that she was awarded the, the Nobel Prize. Um, so she practiced her speech uh, in front of the class, and, and you really felt like you were, uh, I mean, I already felt like I was part of something special, but I guess I didn't realize how special um, until that day. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, over the next couple of years, um, uh, she, she joined my um, thesis committee. Um, I got invited to do a sort of talk to the Bloom larger Bloomington community about the links between the scholarship and uh, um, uh, cooperative living, and she kind of coached me and supported me through that, and she was just an incredibly supportive, kind person who's really inspiring, who connected to something important. Uh, and so as a consequence, over the years, I've shifted my research more and more straight, purely 100% in the direction of pursuing um, the workshop's scholarship uh, in the realm of online communities, which is a separate kind of conversation. Um, I, I already loved comparing. When I first discovered co-ops, I moved every six months. So I lived uh, during undergrad in seven houses. Um, just over like three years. Uh, the smallest was 11, the biggest was 130. Um, over the years, uh, um, the smallest has gone down to four people, the biggest has gone up to 400 people. There's a, Jap there's a student cooperative uh, in Japan, several actually, that are gigantic. Um, and so just the varieties of group living experience and how you keep the kitchen sink clean like, so it's great to compare because keeping the kitchen sink clean is a fundamental problem no matter how big your community is, yeah. but how you solve that problem is fundamentally different. So that was my term paper um, for, for Lynn's class. Why is it still Y673? I think yeah? so. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it was just sort of showing how the regimes scale um, as, as you get more and more people under the same roof and, and collect, the nature of collective action changes, both the problems to solve and the resources you have available to solve them. Um, both really informs like, how the institution design changes to solve the, the same fundamental problems. Um, pooling resources together to buy food, kitchen sink, cooking together, bathrooms, you know, uh, cleanliness and, 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 pool, and uh, pooling financial resources for economic scale, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's continued to be a huge area of interest, so um, it happens to be the specialty of the workshop, comparative institutional analysis. And so just, it's just been such a dream that I accidentally stumbled on this personal interest that's personally meaningful. Um, and I'm also strongly identify as a scientist. I love doing science. Um, and I have a strength in the quantitative side of that. Um, and so to be a human being who gets to do something I really care about with tools I really respect um, is a dream. So you've talked about um, solving problems at different scales. Yeah. I wonder if we could take an example, perhaps a kitchen sink, perhaps another if you yeah. want. Um, if you could share how um, that problem has gotten solved uh, at different cooperative houses you've lived in. Yeah, yeah. So um, we can just start small. Uh, the smallest co-op I lived in was called, um, what did we call it? It didn't last very long. It was sort of a house of exiles. I was an exile in my community oh. for a little bit. <laughs> It's, it was okay. Uh, so, it was, so that was just roommates, right? And at roommate scale, like, 
um, if there's only you know three four of you, you know who left the dishes in the kitchen sink because this person's like gone on weekends and this person like is a morning person, that person's a night person. So there's no monitoring issue necessarily. And because you know you're being watched, you're more internally accountable. And if you're not internally accountable, um, you know how to resolve conflicts and who to talk to. Yeah. Um, so so there's a natural. So you don't really need institutional structure because everyone sort of has more or less full-ish information. Um, as you get bigger, let's say um, uh, another community house used to be called Helm's Deep. Uh, um, now it's called Witch House. Uh, that's 14 people, I think. And there you need a system. I was I was a founder of, of that house. Um, uh, and so I was there when 13, other, 13 people who had never lived in community before, or 12, um, uh, had to figure out how to live together. And they all grew up in little farm towns in Indiana or whatever. Um, and they'd never experienced this before. So they're coming in with ideas about, oh, well, people are cooperative. We don't have to worry about it. So that was the first system, is we don't really need rules. We'll just be nice to each other. Um, and that, uh, that fails um, pretty quickly. And so we try another system. We went through three sort of kind of work shift or responsibility accountability systems uh, in as many months. Um, and that was an amazing crucible, um, I think, for people to just experience collective action. Um, I like these people, I care about these people, I enjoy these people, and we need structure in order to be happy in a house together. Um, and I think it was the mistakes of, the, for, of those months that led everyone to the shared experience of what can work and, and can't work, and really led naturally to a system that we then retained for several years. Um, and that was... 14 people, seven nights a week, so everyone cooks. Two people cook every night, you know, that covers the week. And then a uh, sort of sign out uh, work shift system. So, uh, but pretty self-regulating. Then as you get bigger into, let's go from 14 people to 140 people, um, you start to have excess resources. You start to have surpluses. And so, but you also have a way bigger coordination problem, more free riding, less accountability. So um, the Berkeley co-ops, it's very characteristic to have managers. Someone gets free rent, and they orchestrate a workshop system. They assign, they monitor, um, uh, or they create a monitoring system, an accountability system, and they sort of bring attention to problems, failures, um, successes. And so, so you get the emergence of authority, um, both because you have the resources to support it and because you have like, just the greater need for it, the greater difficulty of a sort of be excellent to each other mutual accountability system, which just doesn't scale great. Not that it's impossible, I, 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 I hope it's possible. I think it's possible, um, uh, and it's really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, then when you get in the, so I was expecting with 400 that you just have even better scale. Um, this is this Japanese student cooperative, it's called Keiteki Ryo, um, it's in Sapporo, Japan. It's one of a couple um, that still exists around the country. I was expecting, oh, well, they'll really leverage scale. They have a special building that was just for that. Um, but what's interesting about that is that um, it operates as 20 political units of 20 people. So they actually split back into like this internally federated system where each of these 20 units has its own kitchen, uh, its own um, rule system, its own sort of theme and norms. If you walk down different hallways, you'll see the cleanest place, the, the place that sort of fits our stereotypes of Japan, really clean and tidy. You'll also see the filthiest place I've ever lived in my entire life, um, 
where there's like layers of dirt on the floor and some dirt has caked on so much it's starting to chip off and reveal less dirty dirt. It was amazing. Uh, I was fascinated. And they all had like totally different, all these 20 units of 20 had their totally different way of working. Some did shared meals, some didn't. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just, it breaks down into 20 co-ops that are in the same building, but are actually able to benefit from being like literally adjacent to each other. To the point where one community will use its kitchen um, every Tuesday afternoon to cook for the entire 400. There's this emergent market system where they'll raise money for their floor by cooking and posting flyers all over every week all over the building for, you know, this week, Tuesday lunch is going to be this kind of soup. I have the flyers and the drawings. It's amazing. Uh, so you have emergent market exchange, but in this cooperative system that, like, you can't really call them, you know, depraved capitalists. It's more of just, like, a wonderful way of benefiting from scale and maintaining smallness. So this is an example of just, like, all the different ways of supporting collective action as a function of uh, just number of people in the system that really is, is crystal clear when you have a chance to compare across, you know, three orders of magnitude. You know, four people, 40 people, 400 people. Um, uh, uh, what their institutional structures look like. Mm -hmm. And this is before, like, becoming a part of, of the workshop, so. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the free rider problem. How has that, um, how have the co-ops that you've lived in and been a part of handled the free rider problem? Oh, um, right, yeah. So, so when I f was first introduced to the workshop, I would bring, um, there was a question in my house of, do we really need punishments that's so authoritarian, blah, 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 da, da, da. Um, uh, why can't we just be great to each other? What if we rewarded great behavior? Um, and so I, I would bring papers, uh, I would bring literature from the workshop uh, um, to house meetings uh, and say, oh, well, these are the cases you should use rewards, these are the cases you should use punishments, we can use a mix in this environment, blah, blah, blah. And no, no one really cared. Uh, but it does illustrate the point that there's a lot of things we can do. And um, it seems like, I don't know, Mm, the best is be excellent to each other, right? That, that what's right is so deeply internalized that we don't have to rely on peer enforcement. And people hold that kind of in opposition to like an explicit top-down or peer-to-peer -peer enforcement system. I had one co-op that had um, uncooperative fines. It, just any member could, um, for any reason, um, apply a $10 fine to someone else. Yeah. Uh, this was a larger house. This is 130. Um, and, it, and then that person could appeal to the whole house. And so there's one case of a housemate who, with her fingers, um, uh, went into the house peanut butter jar and then licked it off and went into the house jelly jar and licked that off. It was her, like, really fast uh, PB&J. <laughs> so she got a cooperative fine, appealed it, to 130 people at the weekly house meeting got laughed at as the most hilarious meeting I've ever been a part of, but like with like absolute pride and conviction, like defended herself to the end. Um, <laughs> and obviously like retained the punishment, but like was so impressive for standing up for like the appropriateness of her actions. Uh, um, so yeah, we kind of contrast like top down punishment from bottom up, but. Um, I had an opportunity to experience um, housing cooperatives in Switzerland, 
And in Switzerland, like 5% of, of housing, or at least in Zurich, uh, 5 to 10% is cooperative, including for adults. And it's an incredibly well-ordered society. And that means really high fines for jaywalking, um, like for like 400 bucks. So when, when, I, when I got threatened with a $5 fine in Germany, I like, I almost laughed at the police uh, for, for jaywalking. Um, I had to like keep a straight face. I was so happy to get a $5 fine. Um, but there's also crazy internalization of norms um, to the point where um, the kind of weekly newspaper in Zurich had this user survey of in what way do you spy on your neighbors? So like crazy uh, peer enforcement to the point where um, a lot of people ha who live in cooperatives in Zurich report that it feels kind of oppressive that you're always being watched, that your life's not your own. Uh, and so I actually think that, like they almost come hand in hand, top-down enforcement and internalization. In some case, at least that exists in the case of Zurich. So they're not first like peer enforcement or internalization are not um, ideal. Like they're not the utopian alternative. I think to rules, they have downsides. It like can be very oppressive to live in a place where you're you feel coerced by the social environment to hold all these rules that you don't necessarily believe in. Or maybe you do, and there's something else going wrong. I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily utopian. I th so I'm, I've kind of become okay with like rules, enforcement, punishment. Um, you know, it can be taken too far. But I think as a tool in the toolbox of a good mix of stuff to get people to like be good to each other in a shared environment, um, I'm I'm pretty uh, pluralistic. Um, I'd love to hear from you what. Uh, different kinds of decision-making uh, systems you've seen employed, um, like consensus or um, direct democracy or other kinds of voting systems. Um, what is your take on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit the same way of like people, you know, want like direct democracy to be this like ideal and any emergence of like authority or some kind of um, leadership or, or oligarchic class is like kind of understood as a failure of, of some kind of ideal. And, um, you know, to the whole world, I'm kind of a democracy, uh, ad, uh, I'm a democracy advocate and, ad, and, and, and um, an activist. Uh, I study it and try to make it better. But within the circle of democratic activists and within the circle of egalitarian types, I'm usually arguing pretty hard for like the value of authority and hierarchy and bureaucracy. I think bureaucracy does not get a fair shake. It's basically um, one of our better fairness mechanisms. Um, and to the extent it's vulnerable to capture, everything's vulnerable to capture. So that's not like a good critique of bureaucracy alone. So the point being, democracy voting is great, but you can't just copy paste it onto a bunch of people with zero training zero experience. I really think, I mean, like, philosophers rarely agree on anything, and so it's pretty cool that philosophers of democracy universally agree that um, a healthy democracy has, uh, involves a population with shared values and training and experience and daily practice in democracy. And this is a, a, um, a conclusion of, of Vincent Ostrom as well. Um, so, it becomes a question of how do you provide that training? And one perspective is co-op fail because people don't have that training. Another perspective is co-ops are a valuable ex uh, um, component of a, of a democratic nation because they provide the training. You know, four years out, you, you can no longer be naively like pro-democracy. 
um, uh, you can become uh, sophisticatedly pro-democracy, which tends to turn, which tends to sound like providing explicit training, or just kind of appreciating that making mistakes, that everyone has to make certain mistakes in order to come around to like the mature conclusion, which is that like democracy, uh, um, voting can fail. Um, uh, it's it's subject to um, uh, mob rule sometimes. That can happen. It's not like the rule, but it's one of the failure modes. Um, uh, it's vulnerable to apathy, where you just kind of lose turnout entirely. And and BCL in town, I've seen it go through. All, I've seen it do all these, and I've seen it do amazing things as well. It's just every institutional design choice has important downsides and. We should accept those with the upsides and just be informed um, about the trade-offs we're making with every design decision. Um, uh, and and uh, BCL provided, you know, refined that training for me, even though I'd already lived in many communities before then and thought I was coming in very well informed. Um, and it's provided, and I'm very proud to say, I think it's provided that training to a lot of people who have lived in it over the last decade. Is there, before I ask my last question, is there anything else that you want to say about the overlap between Ostrom's workshop research and Bloomington Cooperative Living? Oh, gosh. Well, um, it's certainly like one of the most rewarding experiences of my life to, uh, academia can be very removed from the real world, but building a specific organization in a specific town can feel very like micro and small, like you're not making a difference. So to have this one brief period of my life where I was doing like long-term, big picture, general import research, um, but also really tangible on the ground, like building something that's gonna last work at the same time in a way that's complementary is like, life doesn't get that good um, in any other way. Um, you just really, it's the best of both worlds if they're speaking to each other and so, um, yeah, that's all. That's all I have to say. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. We didn't even get into polycentricity. Are, are we about to? We can if you want. <laughs> um, that is just something Ariana and I are talking about. Um, it's a concept out of the workshop that kind of generalizes or makes more complicated the idea of federalism or hierarchy or nesting, uh, and it's a constant topic of discussion uh, as um, a community like a cooperative grows. Um, how do you grow? Do you become a bigger house? Do you become lots of small houses? Then there's more meetings because you have your house meeting and your community meeting. Uh, and then there can be some dilution. There's more distance between the people who are just moving in, who we want to, f to come out feeling a lot of ownership. But as you get bigger, then there's more authority. There's like somebody getting paid to do the work that was normally done by those people, which is how they got their training. But now they just feel like it's a, they, at some point you can't tell the difference between a co-op and just any kind of corporate provided housing. Um, so this is just like a constant tension, not just in, in cooperatives, but all over. Um, uh, I just we, guess we just had that mini conversation. <laughs> like there's, yeah, there's downsides of scale, there's upsides of scale. And, uh, and great, well, what do you think? Um, I've been thinking about polycentricity because BCL is in a time of growth. Um, we have a new house that joined earlier this year. There's another one probably going to join in a few months. And um, that is changing the number of people at our general assembly meetings. And it's also changing the dynamics um, that, like you said, I, I'm really feeling that I feel very connected to the people in my house. but I. Uh, can't have that same level of connection to everyone who lives in every other house, especially 
a town like Bloomington, there's a lot of turnover, people change. Um, and I think in some ways I'm a little afraid of, of growth and the, the trade-offs um, in terms of there might be different levels of engagement at the, at the large organizational level, um, but we would definitely gain in terms of economy of scale and also seeing the way that the BCL network has been able to weather really difficult situations like COVID. Um, the only reason the organization was able to financially make it through such a difficult time was because um, houses that had high membership were able to float houses that had really oh, low membership. Cool. So if we had been all independent units, um, it would have been a very different uh, community on the other side. So there's definitely security in numbers and having that flexibility to lean on a larger organization and a larger network of people. Um, but it's hard to see small scrappy projects grow without becoming really corporatized. Yeah. Um, so I think we're just sort of encountering that uh, dynamic that you've described. But I think it's really interesting in the Japanese house that you talked about that this huge group organized in smaller groups that I wonder if there is, you know, like what is that uh, pull towards a small group of people that you can know really well and trust. And yeah. I think that for me, it's about trust and knowing that I, I trust all the people that I live with. Yeah, yeah. And um, I can't trust everyone in the world in that same way. And so how do you systematize trust? Great, yeah. Uh, that, that's great because our our, um, our little script for this interview emphasizes what Lynn has to say about trust. It's the most important <laughs> resource. Very yeah. subtle. Sorry to call it out so <laughs> bonkily. Um, um, there's other, there's other risks to scale. Um, it's not just the feeling of loss of connection to the organization um, and the loss of opportunities for people to get the experience that makes it valuable, not just the, the mission. Um, uh, the Berkeley Student Co-op where I was brought up, it was 20 houses, about like 1,300 members um, experiencing this, and it became a giant target for litigation. So it had giant lawsuits. If, um, if there was a tragedy in one house, then like the entire membership would suffer and the whole mission would suffer. So another reason to say small is be a, a smaller target for litigation. It gets super complicated, especially in this world that's not built to understand what a cooperative is and yeah. that understands that as a weird form of organization. I do wonder if there's room for like further mitosis, um, further splitting. Like, what if there was a um, like a west side BCL and a north side BCL that are separate, like incorporated separately, and maybe there's some weak umbrella organization that still gives both the economies of scale, maybe to share financing or something. Um, and that allows you to scale smallness. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of scaling smallness because one advantage of scale that you didn't um, address is um, uh, more houses, more residents, means more people more uh, better serving the mission in the sense of providing mm -hmm. more people with access to affordable housing uh, that also provides training and economic and political empowerment. So that's the case for scale on my part, um, but how to do that in a way that manages all these downsides, um, I think is not just, uh, I mean, the good news is the bad news. Like, it's not just a, a tricky puzzle for BCL, it's a tricky puzzle for, I think, humans. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and the varieties of, of polycentricity, the varieties of multi-level um, governance that we see around the world are a real testament um, to that dizzying variety of ways to solve this problem. Um, and well, I don't know what you take away from that. Either there are no right answers or there's lots of right answers, um, probably both. 
I've also been thinking about um, property rights. Hmm. And in BCL, some of the houses are, some of the houses and the land that they're on is owned by BCL, and some of them are rented. And um, I'm curious what you think the relationship is between land ownership and uh, cooperative housing, if there is one. Well, I'm thrilled that this is a question because um, uh, when, I, when I began, it was all rentals. And I was coming in really strong with this. Um, it was a claim from experience, but people experienced it as a faith claim that this place will run fundamentally differently if we own it. You will feel differently about your house. You'll feel more responsible, more connected, um, and more able to own it, uh, more able to feel like you own it if you literally own it than if we're, than if we're renters. And we'll exist in 10 years if we own and not if we rent. And I came in really strong with that, and I faced a lot of resistance, actually, um, for good reason. Uh, um, uh, I learned so much about leadership, and I made a lot of because I made a lot of leadership mistakes. Um, and just the idea of leadership is inherently suspect in a good way in a democratic organization. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm like the evangelist. Like, oh, ownership solves all problems. You know, like, <laughs> people magically become engaged uh, uh, when when there's ownership. Um, but I never got to um, live in the owned house, and I never got to see the owned and like really like CC the owned and the rented houses. Kind of now that it's so normal, um, and and never get a sense if there's really a, a different feeling at the rented house than the owned houses. I kind of want to know what 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 you've seen. I well, I've only ever lived in the rented house, okay. so um, I. But I, I, I have to say, I feel really engaged. Okay. I feel, <laughs> I feel really connected. I think there is a sense of vulnerability in that you're, you know, you're. If the landlord decides that we won't live there anymore, I can't change that. Uh -huh. um, and of course, there's all sorts of catastrophes that could befall <laughs> any ownership structure, um, but. Yeah, I, I I haven't experienced renting as inhibiting my commitment to the house, yeah. um, but it's there in the back of my mind. Uh, there's two mechanisms. I'm gonna go, like theorize for a second. Okay. Um, uh, if if you made me guess, I would kind of guess. Um, I, I might have guessed the same thing that the rent that there's not a tangible difference in the sense of ownership between the rented and the owned houses. And I think there's two mechanisms for that. Um, if I was going to make up knowing nothing, I haven't lived in BCL in ten years, so like everyone in it knows way more than me. But I'm going to like go out anyway and say two things. There might be what you call a Matthew effect or like a glow effect. If you're part of a system that owns, it's okay if you're not living in an owned house. There might still be that sense that like. Well, I still own something. I'm still contributing to the ownership of something. That's one thing. Another thing is, after ten year relationship with like the same landlord in multiple properties, um, uh, in a property that's really hard to rent to anything but a co-op, unless you want to rent to a frat, we have so much leverage over him, you know, and and, and him over us is this mutual dependence. That's kind of like ownership light in a way. Like we have so much of the say that you have if you own. Uh, I'm saying we, isn't that crazy? Oh my goodness, it's been so long. Um, that's really cute. Uh, yeah, so I, I wonder if those are two things that might contribute to a feeling of ownership even in a rented setting. Yeah, I can definitely see both of those things. And also the, the financial stability of, of owning land somewhere and hmm. being able to leverage that hmm. um, in other properties. Okay. Yeah. Seth gave a wonderful talk in the research series earlier during his visit here, 
and we'll link that in the show notes if you want to watch it. But it was on his research uh, on truly impressively large N studies of online communities and uh, comparative analysis of online governance. Um, and so I'm curious, do you see any overlap in those studies um, of hugely comparative online spaces to terrestrial co-ops uh, at the micro scale? Um, so this is, so like the hard work's already been done and it was done by Lynn. Um, she did, she's been 50 years convincing the world that something's experienced by these lobster fisheries and that Swiss alpine pasture and these Nepali irrigation systems and, and these um, um, Latin American like forest communities. Something's happening that they're all dealing with the same problem, that they're in an important sense the same thing. Specifically, um, they're all human beings managing common pool resources that are vulnerable to the tragedy of the commons. And because of this general theoretical framework that's allowed to call us the same thing, and they're very different from each other, I'm allowed to kind of come in and say, oh, online communities are that too. They also like are com uh, have common pool resources that are vulnerable to the tragedy of the commons. And so the insights that we gain from them um, become possible candidates for general insights to the real world as well. Now, um, uh, am I saying that because like online communities are the best example of what I care about? No. I think if I could, um, if I really could, if I could snap my fingers and get any data set I wanted, I would get like the bylaws and like the day-to-day -day and like the meeting minutes and all the activities of like every book club, every garden club, every bowling club, um, every like Elks Lodge and like Oddfellows Temple and housing co-op, um, every example of like everyday people trying to solve a problem together. Um, and I would just study that because that's what I care about. I care about like people face-to-face -face building meaning for themselves by being forced to share limited resources with other people or solve limited resource problems with other people. Uh, and I can't do that. Um, uh, it's taking me you know, um, uh, 13 years to live to in 15 co-ops, so we'll call that n equals 15. Um, and it takes me two weeks to get n equals 80,000 um, subreddit discussion forums that also have great self-governance. So from a scientific perspective, um, uh, it makes a lot more sense to study online community for general, uh, for for large-scale comparative insights. And I'm using this trick that the Ostrom workshop gives me to say I'm studying humans generally and not just like Redditors, like, like um, you know, internet users. Um, but that is a compromise. That is a compromise from the ideal of studying what I want to study, which is, yeah, like real on the ground, face-to-face, -face, solving it together. Well, I think it's great that then you get to live that in your personal life and, and fill that <laughs> govern, it, terrestrial governance um, curiosity um, in your personal life. I want to thank you for being uh, foundational to BCL because it has dramatically improved my life. Um, and thank you to all of you listeners for being here. That's it for this episode of the Governance Roundtable. The views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily shared by Indiana University or Bloomington Cooperative Living. For more information on the Ostrom Workshop, check out ostromworkshop.indiana.edu. Most of our events are open to the public and are also available via Zoom. If you like this episode, head over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss future ones. Until next time, we hope you come grow with us again soon.